Chapter 1, Part 2 of The War on Waste Paradox, read by Len Bertain. In the previous section, the young man in the story is basically had to deal with the loss of his good friend Charlie, and he started work at this new company, and interesting things start to happen. It was hard but I did learn how to write the programs for the NC machines. I also taught several other people in the plant how to run the machines. Jimmy Osgood liked my work and continually supported my efforts to train other people in the company. He bought several new machines to use with the new product line, and we were going great guns. My dad had worked there for 37 years and was having a hard time dealing with all these new machines. He liked the old manual lathe and mill and didn't like changes, so he decided to retire. I was 31 and had been at Osgoods for 12 years when they gave me my dad's job. I became a foreman. I was a foreman for less than a year when things got bad for all of us. Jimmy got killed in a car accident. After Jimmy's death, old man Osgood just wasn't the same. He did what he could, but it was in vain. He put the plant up for sale. Pretty soon, a group of investors came from back east who brought the company and brought in a new management team to run it. The head of the group was a hotshot from some business school who was supposed to know what was going on. He was a very impersonal guy who never talked to anyone. We used to call him Darth Vader because he drove his black BMW with dark, opaque windows. When he got out of the car, he always had on his dark sunglasses and black gloves. He parked his Beamer in the shade and covered it with a sissy cover. Whatever he was trying to do, his management style did not go well with most of us. From the moment he came on board, things went badly. Charlie was a great machinist and one of my dad's friends. He was in his mid-fifties and had been at Osgoods for years. He was one of those old-time machinists who used all of his senses. He could tell if a piece was being machined properly with enough cutting fluid just by the smell of the oil as it cooled the parts it was cutting. He knew if a part was being ground properly by the shape and color of the sparks flying off the grinding wheel. He was good, and everyone in the shop knew it. Charlie loved to read machinist magazines and brochures that salespeople left in the lunchroom. One day, in a magazine article, he found a solution to a setup problem on the old Warner Swayze NC machines. So he came over to me and said that he'd figured out a way to solve the setup problem in drilling centers on all those castings. All we had to do was buy a few more boring bars and dedicate them to specific jobs. It was really a neat solution to a big problem. It would have been greatly increased our production in that area because it would have reduced our setups by 30%. After lunch, Charlie and I went up to the engineering department. Before, when we had a good idea, we'd always been able to go to Tom, the head of engineering, anytime we wanted to discuss anything that had to do with production problems. He would take the time to listen to us. After we explained an idea to him, he would argue through several alternative approaches the end result was usually that we would let, uh, he would let us go ahead and try our idea. When, when we arrived at engineering to see Tom, we found out that he was no longer with the company. We hadn't heard that he was fired, 
A new secretary stopped us. She quizzed us on why we were in the engineering and not out on the shop floor. After a few minutes of this interrogation, she buzzed somewhat, and a junior engineer came out to find out what we were doing in the engineering department. We showed this guy the article from the tooling magazine and our cost figures to justify the expenditure. He took our information and told us that he would look over the figures and get to a, back to us in the next week. He didn't even say thank you. He just headed back to his office. Charlie and I stood there for a minute. We really felt stupid. We turned and head out, headed out of engineering and back to the shop floor. A couple of days later, my boss came over to me and said, no uncertain terms, that engineers do the engineering and machinists do the machining. As I left, he asked, you got that? Yeah, I got it all right. If you want my opinion, that's what's wrong with a lot of companies in America today. Engineers do the engineering, but damn it, they don't own the market on ideas. Charlie and I were pretty good, and we had good ideas. I couldn't understand what was happening at work. Why were we being treated so badly? The new management team seemed to bring in a lot of good work. They had designed a couple of new product lines, and we were producing full bore on two shifts. Immediately after the acquisition, we were very busy with a huge backlog. After a couple of months, things started to get crazy. We would work like hell to get an order out, only to find out we were missing a key part when we went to assemble it. Parts started to pile up everywhere. We'd make a run of parts and then find out that we didn't need them right away. By the time we did need them, we had to hunt all over to find them. The situation kept getting worse. We'd get incomplete specifications from engineering. The plant manager would say, look, start the run and the rest of the specs will be down by the time you need them. Of course, the specs were never on time, or if they were, the previous specs were wrong. We would machine a part and then have to do it over again because it didn't fit the machining matching part of the lower assembly. The investors had taken on a big debt to buy Osgoods, so we were really scrambling to get the products out the door. It seemed that even with all the new machinery, we kept falling behind. When the old man ran the company, we would solve problems as they come up. But the new management didn't run things that way. I would take a problem to the superintendent, and he had sent it up to engineering. A couple of days later, a few new drawings would come down, and we'd try to make them work. It was clear that the company was in trouble. Morale in the shop began to slide. Some of the workers found other jobs. Even Charlie seemed to get worn down. He just did what he was told. He ran a machine, and he didn't even bother to tell them the parts were screwed up. He didn't pick up the machining magazines anymore. We started having trouble between the union and management because management was trying to change the work rules. Management wanted the machinists to set up the machines and to have helpers run them. It was just one more hassle. It was getting pretty hard for me to get up and go to work. I hung in there because I felt that's where I belonged. My father taught that when you work for someone, you give him his or her be your best. And I really tried to do that. After a while under the new management, getting up in the morning wasn't a problem anymore. They closed the plant. They said the union wages were too high and that the restrictive work rules with them they couldn't compete. 
A bunch of lowboy trailers were pulled into the lot by Mack tractors and a machinery was carted off to parts unknown. The local paper did a front-page story about why the plant closed and said that the machinery was being shipped to a facility in Mexico. Things became tough after the closure. A few years before, with help from my folks and my in-laws, Sandy and I had been able to buy a couple of acres outside of town that had a nice little house on it. The bank held our mortgage, but it was a payment that we could easily handle on my wages. The plant closing made our life miserable. We used to used up our savings after several months. Sandy's mom and dad and my parents helped us as much as they could. I had to file for unemployment, and I hated waiting in those lines. The state people were no help. When I submitted my form for enrollment, I made a mistake. I put a wrong date on the line and had to go back again to get it all right. There was an old lady running the show who was really terrible. She acted like everybody in the unemployment line was taking her money. To punish me for my mistake in filling out the form, she delayed the payment of my benefits by two weeks. As soon as I laid, was laid off, I went down to the union hall. It was just like going to work. I saw all the same faces. Some of the people found jobs pretty quickly. But with 115 machinists unemployed all at once, the market was soon saturated. Charlie and I looked for work together so that we would share gas and leads. We followed up every possible lead that we got. When all the companies turned us down in a 10-mile radius from home, we expanded our search by moving in an ever-widening circle. One afternoon, before Charlie and I were finished, he pulled a pint of whiskey from his coat pocket. He removed the talk, took a long swig, and offered it to me. This, this really pissed me off. I was depressed about not finding work, and I didn't need alcohol. I told him, God damn it, Charlie, nobody's going to hire us if you smell like booze. I should have seen it coming when Charlie responded, Nobody's going to hire an old man like me anyway, so what's the difference? I was unwilling to give up. I said, Charlie, remember when you used to come over to Dad's place on Saturday? I sure do. You really helped him out a lot in those days. You're the best. And you know it? You've forgotten more about machine work than most guys ever know. If you just hang in there, it'll be all right. He didn't say anything. He just took another swig and stared off into space. That's the end of part two of chapter one of the War on Waste Paradox. See you next time. Thank you very much.